Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Dr. John Putulil. Dr. John practiced medicine as a pediatrician and allergist for more than 30 years. He began his practice in 1974 and retired in 2008. He holds certifications from the American Board of Pediatrics, the American Board of Allergy and Immunology, and the Canadian Board of Pediatrics. During his medical practice, Dr. John's passion led to a multi-decade personal study and research project of reading many medical journals, articles, medical textbooks, and other scholarly work in biology, biochemistry, physiology, endocrinology, and cellular metabolic functions. Dr. John has written articles on hunger, citation, weight loss, diabetes, and the senses of taste and smell. His articles have been published in medical journals such as Physiology and Behavior, Neuroscience and Biobehavioral Reviews, Journal of Women's Health, Journal of Applied Research, Nutrition, and Nutritional Neuroscience. His work has been quoted in Women's Day, Fitness, Red Book, and Women's World. Dr. John and I will be having a conversation about his remarkable life's journey and his latest superbly illustrated book, When Your Child Has Cancer. Good morning, Dr. John. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. I thank you, Mr. Johnny Tan, for having me, and I thank our listeners. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me. When Your Child Has Cancer is extremely insightful, beautifully illustrated, and a treasure trove of information. So congratulations on its release. Thank you. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. And we do have the old hours, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I won't take whole hour to t- make it short. <laughs> so I grew up in India. I studied medicine there. I went to Scotland for internship. I came to the United States to do residency and fellowship. And as you mentioned, I practiced medicine over 30 years, 27 of those in the state of Texas. Very, very interesting. What attracted you to medicine in the first place, and especially in particular, pediatrician and being an allergist expert? Well, when I was growing up, I was always interested in finding the why of things. And Mm -hmm. science, especially medical science, intrigued me the most. Pediatrics offered me the unique challenge of treating someone after getting information from somebody Mm -hmm. else, such as the parents. Mm -hmm. So you have to get the knowledge from the parents and then decide what to do for the child. The speciality of allergy and immunology offered exciting new medical findings when I was in the training program. So that is how Mm -hmm. I ended up there. Very, very interesting. So who were your main influences when you were growing up? Well, my elder brothers and sisters, they always encouraged me in my pursuit of looking for things or thinking about. So that is primarily 
where I got the incentive, I could go to either any of the sciences or engineering or medicine. Mm -hmm. So I ended up with medicine, and I'm so happy that they prompted me to do that. Very, very interesting. Would you say that curiosity was the fuel of your success or your passion, so to speak? Yes, curiosity of why things happen, especially in science. It offers mm-hmm. you so many avenues to think about. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to work on diabetes? Now we are getting more personal in the sense, mm-hmm. during my medical practice, one of my close relatives had both of her legs amputated in spite wow. of taking diabetic medication. Then, during my practice, I met others who experienced kidney problems, heart Mm -hmm. problems, developed Alzheimer's while on diabetic medications, including insulin. Mm -hmm. And this bothered me. So I started looking into this condition out of curiosity. Why is this happening? They are keeping their blood sugar within A1C below 7 range, yet Mm -hmm. they are having the same complications. And I came across the term insulin resistance being used to characterize type 2 diabetes. So I was Mm -hmm. curious, what is this insulin resistance? I'm sure you have heard of that concept. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. What Mm -hmm. I found was the term was originally used or proposed to describe the finding of elevated blood sugar or blood glucose in the presence of adequate levels of insulin in the body. And Mm -hmm. repeated use of this term then came to mean that it is causing diabetes. It was never meant to be that way. It was just a descriptive term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when in the public domain it came to be the cause of diabetes, diabetes specialists, had a duty, I believe, to correct it. It is it's an inaccurate assumption. It's never been validated as a causative factor of diabetes, only an explanation. But they did not do that because admitting that would mean type 2 diabetes <laughs> is not a hormonal disease. It mm. is a disease of overnutrition. Mm-hmm. And I may be a little bit blunt here, but that is how I feel <laughs> about it. Type right. 1 diabetes is a true hormonal disease, but type 2 is a nutritional condition, not a hormonal disease. Again, if right, I offend true. somebody, I, pardon, I ask their pardon. You hit right on the nose, though, because I know that at one time I was diagnosed as pre-diabetic. But then how do I get out of that? It's your nutrition. You've got to watch what you eat that you can exactly. control that. Yeah, I, I'm glad that at least that you understand where I'm coming mm-hmm. from. Yes, yes, so true. How do our behavior contribute to overall well-being? Well, all you have to do is to look at the modern lifestyle conditions, such as mm-hmm. type 2 diabetes we just mentioned, cardiovascular diseases, and mm-hmm. cancer. They all affect our well-being and they, are, they can all be modified by our behavior. Well, that's true. I started out not eating any vegetable, and I still don't in many ways, so I'm a more of a meat consumer and also heavy into carbohydrates because we're from Asia, and you know how it is. Our base staple is rice. And 
So I've converted from white rice to brown rice years ago. I felt that helped tremendously. And whether it's from a fiber perspective and so forth, right? But eventually when I was diagnosed with preconditioned diabetes, the doctor told me, well, it's still carbohydrate that you're consuming. And so your goal is to be able to cut it down in terms of the portion-wise, so to speak. So that was quite interesting. It was an amazing experience for me. The interesting part here is, this is the question I get asked all the time. We have been mm-hmm. using rice for thousands of years. Why yeah. now? Right. The answer is very simple. If you look at 100 years ago, what our forefathers ate or how much rice, the carbohydrate portion of the diet, it, mm-hmm. it gave only 35% of the total daily energy intake. That came from mm-hmm. the carbohydrate of rice. Mm-hmm. Now, in developed countries like United States and in Europe, 50% of the daily food intake energy, food energy comes from carbohydrate. In mm-hmm. developing countries or even in the poor areas of developed countries, it is 70% of the daily energy intake. Just think about when is the last time anybody has or you, you may have cut it down. Mm-hmm. a meal or a snack without a carbohydrate from grain. When is the last time? It's very difficult. It is, it is difficult. <laughs> and what has happened is, after the Industrial Revolution, 60 yeah. years ago, almost every government around the world is subsidizing grain farming. Right. The cheapest and the most processed food, the easiest food that you can buy and eat, they all come from grains and grain flour products. So right. we are consuming so much more grain than uh, intended. Now, let me, since mm-hmm. we are on the grain, let me ask you a simple right. question. If nature intended grains for humans, mm-hmm. don't you think we would have had beaks to pick up the grains? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and the ability to digest the chaff, Right, right, right. We don't. Right, right. Well, we just do too many things in excess. That's the problem. But in all fairness, though, and there some of us do have a great challenge because of our DNA makeup. Well, that is an interesting you know, question I get uh, again. Now, what, yeah. does in, what does DNA contain? DNA is just a recipe book. Okay. DNA in the genes that genes cannot initiate any biological action in the cell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The DNA is just a book of information. And instruction has to come to open up a specific page and then copy that instruction for execution. Mm -hmm. For example, you you have heard of uh, women who have inherited a diabetic cancer gene, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That gene is present in that person from day one of her life. Mm-hmm. But she does not have cancer from day one of her life, does she? Mm-hmm. Have, you, Very interesting. have you thought about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty so, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So the DNA or the gene only gives you the potential. It is not your fate. It is a potential. Something else has to activate that uh, possibility. 
Right. And if we go further, it's not necessarily just activating and nurturing it and growing exactly. it. And I agree. <laughs> wow. Exactly. I totally agree with that. So why did you pivot to the study of cancer? For the simple reason that I was diagnosed with it nine years ago. Wow. Until that time, I was mm-hmm. not very much interested in knowing about cancer for the simple reason that it was a scary thought. Mm-hmm. So when I was diagnosed, I had two options. I could be at the mercy of my oncologist and follow what he says, mm-hmm. or I could learn more about it because I, I, we may, I hope we'll have a chance to talk about what I call anticipatory stress. What I found was I can be stressed about my diagnosis of cancer and I will think about cancer and, or, or the problem of cancer over and over and I get more and more stressed. Mm-hmm. Or you know, most of that stress comes from what I don't know. Cancer is such an unknown thing in our life right. or a scary thing. So what I thought was, in order to reduce the intensity of anticipatory stress, I need to know more about it. And that's where I started the journey. Very, very interesting. You just mentioned something that it's a behavior tendency we have because we are always stressed out, having the anxiety of the unknown versus focusing on what's known. And so what you have done, your natural tendency of let's go find out, let's learn and research and so forth, I presume that's what led you to where you're at here today. Yes, that's exactly right. Wonderful. How did the inspiration for When Your Child Have Cancer book come about? Well, about three, four years ago, I was giving a talk on my cancer journey or how to survive mm-hmm. cancer to an audience of cancer specialists and, uh, and, and students. Mm-hmm. And one of the cancer professors, or professors of cancer in that institute, she stood up and asked, Dr. John, the average age of a, an adult with cancer is over 65 because the adult has to accumulate mutations of genes right. to right. develop a cancer cell. But the average age of a child with cancer is only six the child has not lived long enough to accumulate all these mutations. So how does a child develop cancer? Mm-hmm. Until that question was asked, I never even thought about it. So that mm-hmm. is what led me to research. Why should a child have cancer? Well, that's very interesting. Like you said, we may all carry specific genes, but if we don't nurture it and nourish it, it doesn't go anywhere. Exactly. Very, very interesting. So please tell us about the beautiful and engaging illustration in the book. Well, when you are are pressed with a medical condition, such as cancer, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as I mentioned, most of the fear comes from the unknown. And we, our mind can project so many outcomes. And each time you think about it, our brain thinks this is real and it will release the stress hormones, adrenaline and and cortisol, and you Mm -hmm. keep having more and more stress. And imagine the stress level, the fear, the anxiety of a parent whose child has been diagnosed with cancer. 
they, they are almost powerless. They are totally at the mercy of the of the oncologist or the cancer care mm-hmm. team. I'm not saying they should not listen to them. Yes, they should. But at the same time, they the more they understand the condition, they, the more they can help the child because it's a long journey that the child needs support and the parents need the knowledge. So in order to make science more accessible to an average reader, there's nothing mm-hmm. better than illustrations to mm-hmm. translate science into common knowledge. So that is why we insisted on having all these illustrations, and I was blessed with a good team who could execute that, and you see the result in the book. Yeah, it's beautifully done, and one of the most important things, I think, when you talk about, in this particular case, about children, you want them to actually want to pick up the book and see it for themselves. And so this book hit the ball out of the park, so to speak, as far as that's concerned, because a lot of times the information is there, but it's not what you say, it's how you say it. In this case, it's how you present the information. This is very engaging not only to the parents, but certainly to the desired intended person, the child. Well, the, 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 the thing here is not only for the parents to understand what I'm saying, but how can they translate that mm-hmm. and talk to the child based on the child's ability to absorb what the parent is saying? Mm-hmm. So the illustration helps the parent to help the child to understand, to explain to the child what's going on. So that is the primary purpose. And I'm so glad that you mentioned specifically the illustrations. That makes me feel that we did a good job. (laughs) Oh, you guys did an excellent job. Like I say again, because is this a workbook for the parent or is it for the family? That's two different things. And this is a workbook for the family. And I cannot stress it even more than that. That's the difference because you want to be engaging because it's like, mom, what you're reading? Oh, I'm reading about this, this, this. Uh, well, that sounds good, but there's a disconnect there. All I see is information. And so this book really breaks it down to whereby the child is interested in his or her journey of recovery. Exactly. Thank you. Beautifully done. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Teachers Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, Mixcloud, Podchaser, Listen Notes, and Hop Hopper. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Dr. John Puttahill. Dr. John practiced medicine as a pediatrician and allergist for more than 30 years. He began his practice in 1974 and retired in 2008. He holds certification from the American Board of Pediatrics, the American Board of Allergy and Immunology, and the Canadian Board of Pediatrics. Dr. John's passion, multiple decades, personal study and research project resulting in authoring several books on health and nutrition that affects our overall well-being. We're having a conversation about his remarkable life's journey and his latest superbly illustrated book, When Your Child Has Cancer. Dr. John, why do children develop cancer? Well, Let's define what is cancer. Cancer means uncontrolled multiplication of a cell. For example, if you get a cut on your skin, the new cells start growing from either side of that cut, the open cut, 
and when they meet in the middle the multiplication process stops mm-hmm. and the wound is healed now how does this happen when a cut cell is exposed it sends a message to the nucleus of my neighbor is missing and the nucleus as genes as we mentioned earlier with instructions mm-hmm. and the that gene opens up and it is active the cell division order is issued and when the cells meet and there is another gene that issues a work stop order and everything is fine but something goes wrong in the process of cancer and every cell that produces a new cell is called a stem cell now mm-hmm. i'm going to propose something you may never have thought about every human being is the product of a stem cell mm-hmm. when the sperm fertilizes the ovum we have a single cell called zygote and from that single cell comes a complete human being of 32 trillion cells so that first cell is the original stem cell for each mm-hmm. human being but the growth is a controlled growth there's a specific steps and the stem cell grows and then it stops but within our body there are stem cells thousands of them as backup cells mm-hmm. just i just mentioned skin when there is a cut new cells have to be formed where do they come from there's a stem cell designed for producing new skin cells there's a stem cells for bone in the bone marrow to produce mm-hmm. new bone cells uh, or red cells or Uh, immune cells for every organ there is a backup stem cell so what i am proposing is is suppose a stem cell that is already present in the baby as in the during the fetal ta- stage there is a developmental anomaly such as a malfunctioning of the internal power generation facility called mitochondrion or a stem cell is misplaced it is not in connection with the neighbors and mm-hmm. it starts one of these two types of stem cells if they start responding to a signal to multiply but it cannot stop so that stem cell with a developmental anomaly or misplaced is a cancer cell in waiting so to speak mm-hmm. very very interesting very very interesting How is childhood cancer different from adult cancer? Well, as I just mentioned, the in adult cancer, the stem cells start accumulating mutations of genes either through radiation, exposure to chemicals, infections, mm-hmm. or oxidative damage from oxygen radicals during metabolic process, and gradually the gene in charge of inhibiting growth or multiplication after the need is met for example we mentioned woman a woman mm-hmm. inheriting a, a breast cancer gene what right. that means is every gene in our body two copies one from the father one from the mother 
So in the woman who has inherited a breast cancer gene, the, the gene that she inherited from one parent is defective. Mm-hmm. But the other gene can take over the function. But suppose later on in life, the other growth-inhibiting gene was damaged through environmental exposure or oxidative damage. Mm-hmm. That is when the process starts. Gotcha. The equilibrium shifted, so to speak. Exactly. Very, very interesting. So what causes that? Again, that is what the environment, the exposure to mm-hmm. a chemical or a radiation or multiple or you smoke right all right, these right. chemicals you, can produce uh, can damage the working mm-hmm. gene that should stop uh, the multiplication or of the mm-hmm. cell very interesting is the potential of having cancer preventable at the baby stage of a child's life that's a very interesting question because do you know when we have the maximum number of precancerous cells in the body when we are in the mother's womb in the fetal mm-hmm. stage and 99% of those cells are destroyed before the baby is born mm-hmm. that tells us that having a cancer cell is not something new for the person. It happens in the body all the time or periodically. Mm-hmm. The body is well equipped to, to, to take care of that, either through replacing a mutated gene or the body has mechanisms to activate what is called self-destruction of mm-hmm. a precancerous stem cell or the body has active killer cells that can Mm -hmm. hunt down a cancer cell and destroy them. Mm -hmm. So having a cancer cell, it can happen because each time a cell divides, it has to duplicate almost 25,000 genes in a matter of few hours. So mistakes are common. Mutations are common. So there is no way you can prevent it, but you can prevent uncontrolled multiplication of a cancer cell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. What should a parent's role be for a child who is living with cancer? That is what the, the basis of the book. Now you are coming mm-hmm. to the main part. Mm-hmm. See, the thing is, the parents are overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. Right. So the first, there are three or four points I, speci- I specify in the book. One is that if the parents are fearful, what, what do you think the child is feeling? The child is feeling it, he or she is somehow responsible for this condition. She did something right. wrong or she did not do something. So the first thing is to make sure the child does not feel guilty or responsible for the condition. It is nothing what the child did or the parents did or the family did. So that is the first thing to make sure the child understands that. Mm -hmm. The second point is to keep the household functioning as normal as can be under the circumstances. There is a tension, there is anxiety, but everybody has to lead as normal a life as possible. 
The third point is the parents can never show anxiety in the presence of the child. The mm -hmm. child can misinterpret it. You may mm -hmm. be anxious about something else, but don't show that in front of the child who has been diagnosed with cancer because the child, may, child is always thinking about the, the unknown condition. And if the parent is anxious, the child doesn't know, is it about something else or is it my condition? Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. in order to do all that, the parent literally has to become an extremely interested outsider, detached from the problem. How, if it was somebody else's child, for example, how can I help? That kind of detachment is what the parent needs. I need to help this child of mine. Yes, I love him, I love her, but right now I need to be more detached to be able to help the child. So these are the uh, points that I make. And, the, and of course, the parent has to get help from uh, other people who are experts in the field. Right, right. The parent's role is critical in setting basically the hemisphere that everything is cool, everything is collected, no worries, and the psychological side of the equation, basically. Exactly. You need to get as much data, reliable data as possible, talk to the experts, and then you can deal with it much better. Very interesting. So true. How should parents share the news with the child? Now, keep in mind, the child is as anxious or, or even sometimes mm -hmm. more anxious. So the best thing is first trying to understand what is on the child's mind. Talk to the child honestly. They, they, they are concerned, they are obsessed with the fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And there is actually a biological basis for this obsession. Because physiologically, the more one thinks about a bad situation, the more their neurons, more, more number of neurons are dragged into in deeper right. and deeper state of all-consuming obsession. And in, the, in this case, a self-pity. Mm -hmm. So those who feel overwhelmed and frightened, every one of us can calm down with time in an environment of support for the child from parents, from friends, from professionals. So this is how you may have to inform, but be honest with the child. When the child asks questions, that means he or she has to have as, as open an answer as possible. Mm. That's true. Because as the child feels different, whether it's from with the siblings or friends, that's exactly. where the question starts coming up, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. Because they are told they cannot do this or they cannot do that or they're told you have to go for a medical test, have to go mm -hmm. online or you cannot go to school today. All these are different for that child. And you have to have an explanation that the child can understand at that level. Mm -hmm. to, once you have information, the child will not be as afraid or as frightened as without knowing it. Right. And I have always believed, regardless whether cancer or any other, I guess, medical issues that we all face, whether it's an adult or as a child, 
The interesting thing, we always talk about the synchronicity of life. Well, positive attracts negative, negative attracts positive. But in this particular case, if you're in the negative zone, energy, so to speak, you attract more negative energy, which is actually bad. <laughs> yes. So you want not, to be not in only a that, zone. each t- mm-hmm. the interesting part here is if you are talking to a friend or anybody doing a conversation, something yeah. negative that happened to you, mm-hmm. you know what you will hear? Similar stories from others. They right. immediately jump in, oh, but listen, I, I had exactly the same experience, <laughs> and it will get multiplied. Right. Dragging right. you right. more into the same thought process, and you can remain negative like that for hours or days, and nobody Precisely. will think much. On the other hand, if you say something, say you won a lottery or you had a happy yeah. event, uh, most people don't uh, duplicate that with their own happy events. Right, right. They will right. listen to it politely, but they will say you are, you know, they won't say anything of similar incident that happened in their life. But when right. it comes to a negative thing, it is very common. And you know why? That's correct. Yeah. Do you know why? No. Because no. in the negative realm, it is mm-hmm. it is supported by stress hormones, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. there are no positive uh, supporting hormones. Mm-hmm. For happy mm-hmm. hormones or neurotransmitters, they are short-lived, whereas mm-hmm. the negative hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, you can yeah. keep releasing over and over and can continue the negative process thinking for days or hours or weeks wow. even. That's amazing. And of course, in this particular case, it just compounded the situation, the negativity, and our body is chemically made up. So there's an imbalance. And what That's triggers exactly. it is the psychological side of the equation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So true. So true. Do you have specific activity recommendations for children during their cancer treatment? Well, first of all, the person we are concerned about is still a child. Mm-hmm. And physical activity is an important aspect of living. So the child should continue as much physical activity as possible, but there are limitations because of the condition, because of the mm-hmm. medication, because of uh, appointments and blood tests and things like that. So that is on the one side. But equally important is the mental state of the child. Mm -hmm. If you leave the child alone without an activity or plan, the child's mind goes back to the condition and gets, as, as we just talked about, becoming more and more frightened and deeper into um, the stress condition. So to Mm -hmm. prevent that, you have to keep the child's mind occupied, whether it is reading, listening to stories, interactions with pets or animals, gardening, cooking, simple conversations, video games or screen time with friends to keep the child mentally active. All these are mentioned in my book. But mm-hmm. you can come up with your own creative ideas, whether it is painting or whether it's acting the, asking the child to write a journal. But the child has to keep mentally active. That's true. And what I call positive distractions. 
Exactly. Which is healthy. Exactly. Very, very healthy. How do diet contribute to managing and possibly the elimination of the cancer? Well, if you look at the literature, you can see that humans are experiencing an increasing incidence of cancer worldwide. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why? Is it because cancer cells are being formed more often? Or what I'm suggesting is it is not that the cancer cells are being formed more often, but they are multiplying faster. Let me back up a little bit. Earlier we mentioned human body is well-versed with the presence of cancer stem cells, and the body is capable of preventing or destroying them. We have, uh, to repeat, gene duplication machinery, apoptosis or self-death of cancer cells or hunter cells, killer cells, to destroy cancer. So you can ask the question, if we have this kind of immune surveillance mechanism, why are we even having cancer? My answer is, cancer cells are multiplying at a rate faster than the capability of the immune system to destroy them. Suppose the cancer cells are multiplying at a rate of 1,000 cells per hour, but Mm -hmm. the immune system can destroy all but 100 of them. That 100 that surviving cancer cell multiply again and again and again. It may be a slow rate of multiplication, but over time, that produces the cancer. So it is a balance between the rate of multiplication on one side and the rate of destruction on the other side. So how does the diet contribute? Our, if you don't eat all day, you can still function because your mm-hmm. muscles can produce energy from glucose or fatty acid. And if you have one pound of fat stored in the body, that is 3,500 calories, enough for the whole day, even if you are physically active. Mm-hmm. However, cancer cells get their energy and materials for construction only or mostly from glucose. So the higher the glucose level in the blood, the faster their growth rate of growth. And where does this glucose come from? Grains. In the modern day diet, as we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. our amount of grain consumption or grain-based foods has gone up so much, we are literally feeding the cancer cells that may come in our body at random and making them grow faster, overwhelming the immune system. And that's why the incidence of cancer is increasing in almost every nation in the world. Well, I guess in some ways is eating excess. Yes, exactly. If you can keep the amount of energy coming from grain-based foods to less than 35%, essentially one half of what we are eating right now, we Mm -hmm. can control this epidemic of cancer. Very, very interesting. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on 
iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, Mixcloud, Podchasers, Listen Notes, and Hophopper. My guest is Dr. John Putuhul. Dr. John practiced medicine as a pediatrician and allergist for more than 30 years. He began his practice in 1974 and retired in 2008. He holds certification from the American Board of Pediatrics, the American Board of Immunology, and the Canadian Board of Pediatrics. Dr. John's passion led to multiple decades of personal study and research projects, resulting in offering several books on health and nutrition that affects our overall well-being. We're having a conversation about his remarkable life's journey and his latest superbly illustrated book, When Your Child Has Cancer. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Dr. John, I know we mentioned a little bit about the nutrition and so forth. What is the difference between energy nutrition versus essential nutrition? The cells need nutrients for their Mm -hmm. immediate internal function. For example, when you are deep in sleep, your muscles are very limp. But if you are suddenly awakened with a noise, your muscles have to be activated for you to get out of bed. So energy has to be ready, already preformed, just like electricity. Mm-hmm. You cannot keep producing at that time. The muscles have to move. So some of the almost all the all the energy produced in the body in the, by the cell comes from nutrients. So all all nutrients that we consume don't have the potential for energy. Some do. For example, glucose fatty acids, amino acids, these can provide uh, energy. They can be converted in the cell um, power-making unit called the mitochondrion into ATP, which is the energy. Whereas we need over 100 different nutrients, fatty acids, amino acids, vitamins, minerals, to produce the cell to maintain the daily functions of the cell to fabricate all the materials and molecules needed. So I divide the nutrients into essential nutrient, energy nutrients and essential nutrients. Essential nutrients are the ones that you cannot manufacture in the body. You have to eat them from nature. For example, out of 20 amino acids used by the body, Nine have to be consumed because they cannot be manufactured in the body. Mm-hmm. There are three essential fatty acids humans must obtain from foods. So there are some are classified as essential because the body may not be able to produce enough of them at the rate needed, such as right. medicine, yeah. which is a vitamin. So these are, this is why it classified to essential and energy nutrients. Very, very interesting. So do you have a list of food to consume during the treatment process? Yes. Think about this. In every part of the world, humans are living uh, up to 80, 90, 100 years of age. Right. They don't all eat the same food. Right. They eat what is available locally, which means nature has packaged all the same nutrients Now, if you move from one area to another, you can eat the local produce or Mm -hmm. whatever is available and still live the same way. That means these nutrients are available 
every part of the world, but packaged differently in different fruits and different vegetables, different animals. It doesn't matter as long as you get a wide variety of them. So mm -hmm. my advice is optimum nutrition means eating a wide variety of vegetables and fruits. Now you can supplement that with herbs and spices and nuts and mushrooms. You can have animal products. It does not matter. As long as you mm -hmm. get all the nutrients your body needs, how you package it, how you put it into your mouth makes no difference. Very, very interesting. One of the things I really like in your book is that you talk about cooking with children. How is cooking with children contribute to the treatment process? As I said, they, how can you make a child understand the value of nutrition? How to make them eat different things? So the best way is if they have a part in, in the preparation of the food, mm -hmm. they are naturally curious to eat what they have prepared. So that's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine the entertainment aspects of it, the connection, you're building a greater bond with your child because the kitchen yes. somehow has that energy of connectedness. <laughs> Absolutely. You can make it as interesting, as entertaining as possible, how you cut it, how you shape it, how you mix it. And it's mm -hmm. all valuable lessons for them in appreciating nutrition, good health, and mm -hmm. above all, the enjoyment of eating. Yeah. I'm sure it contributes to, again, the psychological side of the equation because then good mood, happy mood, obviously delivers good eating, good taste, and happy cells. Absolutely, yes. Very, very interesting. Tell us about mindful eating and chewing. I thought it was really cool. <laughs> well, if you ask most people, how much do they enjoy eating? And they said right. they eat because they enjoy. And then I ask, how much of the food you eat that you actually enjoy. They'll say every bite of it. But mm. think about it. How much can you enjoy when you're gulping down breakfast, lunch, <laughs> eat on the run, eat in the car, eat while watching television, go right. all you can eat, buffet meals. Yeah. How, can, yeah. how much can you eat? How much can yeah. you enjoy? It is not how much you eat. It is how much you enjoy what you eat. Right. Right. The, the best analogy is if you go to a grocery store, you, you get the scanner. They scan the item and the register is uh, informed of it. Suppose mm -hmm. you put two items, one on top of the other. The, the scanner can appreciate or record only one at the bottom. Mm -hmm. The same way when you he eat food, the nutrients have to come in contact with the taste buds. What is on top of it, if you have a big bite of a chunk of food, only the one that comes in contact with the receptors are enjoyed. The rest will go down into the throat and down. Right. Now, right. To, to illustrate it further, let us ask, think about this for a minute. When you are thirsty, that means your body needs water. Mm -hmm. But you don't know how much water will it take to quench your thirst. Can you predetermine right. that? Right. You cannot predetermine. Now, mm -hmm. if you're drinking water, how long will it take for you to drink it? A, a few seconds or minutes. And your thirst is quenched. Right. Now, 
by the time your thirst is quenched, where is that water? That water is still in your stomach. It has not been absorbed into the body yet. So how did your brain know you drank enough water to quench your thirst at that time? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. what I'm suggesting is as the water, as you are drinking water, as the water is going through your mouth, there are receptors in the mouth. They are picking up what is going down and not only that, how much is going down. Mm-hmm. They are metering. Those receptors are metering the amount going down and informing the brain this much water has gone down. And your brain knows your exact water deficit. When the intake matches the deficit, thirst sensation is quenched because the body can readjust it after absorbing the water. It gives the body time to recalculate. Mm -hmm. There's a similar mechanism for each and every nutrient. And in order to have that work properly, in order for the receptors to detect the amount of nutrients that you're consuming, you need to chew because chewing releases the nutrients at a rate and speed. The receptors, taste buds and smell receptors in the mouth and the oral cavity and nasal cavity pick them up and report to the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. When I read that portion, it reminded me more of, it is a segue in a way, but it's not because there are very few people that you'll run into that truly appreciate what they eat, right? Exactly. And yeah. I happened to see a homeless person, someone had bought him a box of lunch and he was sitting by himself and every bite to him was an appreciation bite, if that makes sense. Exactly. He was in the yeah. zone. He really was yeah. in the zone. Yeah. Yeah. If you do that, your brain can tell you when to stop. Now, mm-hmm. when you sit down, if you think about it, you don't even know what nutrients you are needing. For example, right. if you go, let's say we go for lunch in a Chinese buffet, 100 items. How would yeah. you choose? <laughs> you, you, cho- you will choose based on your previous experience. You may choose five, right. six or seven. Right. And on what basis? Because you know you will enjoy them. Right. Okay? Suppose we go back to the same buffet for supper. Mm-hmm. Will you take exactly the same six or seven items you enjoyed for lunch? Yeah. Will you? I'm not too sure. I might try something right. else, personally. Right. <laughs> now, you think, if you ask why, you say, oh, I, I, don't, I, I want to enjoy something else. You yeah. know, there is a reason for that. The nutrients absorbed from your lunch are still in your body, but other nutrients are needed by the body now. And from your previous experience, your subconscious mind knows which other foods will provide those nutrients needed in the body right now. So it will Mm -hmm. change the preference to something new. So you Mm -hmm. think you are clever, I want to try something else, (laughs) but your subconscious mind is directing you to do that. So that's how very, powerful very our brain is. Right. That's beautifully put. That's beautifully put. That's very, very interesting. What can we expect from a childhood cancer survivor? What has happened is with the new treatments, more and more children diagnosed with cancer are surviving. In some cases, up to 90%. Wow. However, what has shown is 
later on, some of them experience poor fitness, muscle mm-hmm. weakness, cognitive mm-hmm. de- decline, and later complications. So what they have identified is this is more related to the dose and duration of agents such as chemotherapy and radiation used to treat the condition, the cancer. Mm-hmm. So if we can reduce, that is the str- one of the important facts that I put in the book. If we can reduce the dosage of these medications, we are preventing the late effects when the child is becoming an adult. Mm-hmm. So how can we reduce the medication? How can we help the oncologist or the team to reduce the dosage of medications by slowing down the rate of growth of cancer cell. And that is where the parents come in. If we can reduce or help reduction or help the, uh, the through diet, reduce mm-hmm. the rate of cancer cell multiplication, the oncologist can use less medication and we can prevent some of the late complications. That's true, very true. You have written so many books can you tell us the different books that you've written and how has writing these various books impacted you personally? Well, my first book is called Eat, Chew, Live. And that was primarily because when I started gaining weight, I needed to find out how to stop it. And I said, if I don't eat, I won't gain weight. <laughs> but as we just mentioned, how you eat is more important than what you eat. Right. So if you, you know, when you eat rice, for example, how much can you chew? Mm-hmm. You can't. Mm-hmm. When you stop chewing, you swallow. Right. So the softer the food you eat, the more likely you are going to eat more. You know, you, you can eat rice, but as much. If you can control mm-hmm. the quantity, you can control your condition. So that is one. Then... Mm-hmm. I, as we mentioned earlier, got into diabetes because right. right now you suppose somebody you inject somebody with insulin, the blood glucose goes down. Where does that glucose go? It does not go out of the body. So mm-hmm. what good is it? So those are the questions that answer. Can we control type two diabetes or pre diabetes as in your case without having to use medications? Because mm-hmm. if you're going to use the medications, you need to know exactly how that medication works. If you're switching the glucose from blood to outside the blood, you can measure a low level of glucose in the blood. That doesn't mean you're out of the woods. All yeah. you're doing is hiding it. Mm-hmm. So how to reverse type 2 diabetes is what I wrote in the second one. Then, of course, I was diagnosed with cancer, and I wrote about Surviving Cancer, mm-hmm. and the last one, we discussed how I came about writing When Your Child Has Cancer. Very, very interesting. Where can someone go to get more information about you, buy your books, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, my, I have a website called drjohnonhealth.com, and uh, books are available on Amazon. Wonderful. What is next for you? Well, I, I, what I want to do is to get this message out. When I talk to people, they understand. Mm-hmm. But 
I need to talk to people like you who can spread the word far and wide because most people are now so comfortable. Take diabetes, for example. Mm -hmm. They are comfortable with the number. As long as the A1C is below 7, they are fine. They could care less what the, what happens to the glucose. And mm -hmm. they take the medicine, they got the number, they are told they are doing fine. What I, I want them to think about, what is this insulin resistance? If you are resistant to an antibiotic, do you take that antibiotic as a treatment? Mm -hmm. No. Yet, you are told you are type 2 diabetic because your body has somehow become resistant to insulin. But what do the doctors give you? How is that insulin? How does that make sense? So all I am asking the experts is, prove me wrong. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, I need more and more people asking questions. And that is where people like you, and I thank you for this interview. I, I, I want people like you to spread the word, ask mm -hmm. questions, so that this, when I, that, that, so that is my uh, uh, message right now, or what is what I'm trying mm -hmm. to do, and mm -hmm. ask people, cut down the amount of grain intake to one half of what you are eating right now. That will mm -hmm. make a big difference in all uh, lifestyle-induced conditions or lifestyle-related diseases. Very interesting. Wonderful. As we close this hour, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? That is an excellent question. And <laughs> I want to go back to what I said earlier, how to live and enjoy life by reducing the level of what I call the anticipatory stress. Remember the mm -hmm. term I used? Because mm -hmm. our conscious part of the brain works in three different levels. First is the input that the brain receives from all the special senses and from the sensors in the body. The next level is the analytical side. Mm -hmm. Because the brain has to analyze all this input to determine the meaning. And the third level is the emotional response, such as satisfaction, happiness, grief, fear. When the analysis really reveals a stressful meaning, then stress hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol are released to facilitate the emotional response. But the problem is each time you think about the stressful event, more and more stress hormones are released, creating mm -hmm. more and more emotional stress. So my point is this. Once you have analyzed an input, calculated the meaning, and decided on an action plan. Try not to think about that problem over and over unless you have new information or a new way to analyze the information. In other words, don't keep thinking about the problem. Think mm -hmm. of the solution. Right. This way right. you can reduce the release of stress hormones and significantly reduce what I call anticipatory stress. Beautifully put, beautifully put. Dr. John, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, September 15. My guest will be Cindy Dale. Cindy is an internationally renowned author of 27 books on energy medicine, speaker, and spiritual healer. 
Cindy and I will be having a conversation about her remarkable life's journey and her latest book, Energy Healing for Trauma, Stress, and Chronic Illness. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Dr. John, it has been a true pleasure, sir. Thank you again and have a very blessed day. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye.